Welcome, everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. On today's episode, we have a special guest with us named Jet Stubbs. Jet is a live storyteller as well as a professional career coach. We're going to do things a little differently on today's episode. Before we go into my interview with Jet, we're going to play for you all a live story that Jet had performed at a storytelling event in Toronto in early 2019. So without further ado, here's a story from Jed Stubbs. I was about eight years old as I prepared to walk into the police station. I held my mother's hand tightly as the police officer explained, there will be six men. If you see the man, point him out to us and tell us which number he is wearing. I pulled my mother with me as he led me to the door. No, you have to go by yourself, he said. You'll be all right. They can't see you, only you can see them. They won't see her at all? Are you, wearing, are you sure the mirror works, my mother said? He nodded, her lips shaking as tears ran down her cheeks. I released, I released her hand and walked in. I was outside my parents' house on an island in the Caribbean. It was late in the afternoon, and my brother and I were trying to build a tent the way we saw the white people doing on TV. We had, we had a clothesline, rocks, and my mom's good sheets. But the, <laughs> but the wind kept blowing our tent of sheets down. We were getting frustrated, and we started fighting about how to keep the tent up. Eventually, my brother got angry and went inside to sit on my mom's lap and play computer solitaire with her. I knew I was right about how to build a tent. I stayed outside into the evening to finish building the tent to show my brother and to spite him. As it got dark, I finally stood between two sheets, forming a tense peak along the clothing line, only slightly waving in the air. I knew I was right about how to build a tent. I turned to the house to get my brother. I saw two masked men walking up to the front door, dressed in all black and hiding behind the banana tree that led to the patio and my front door. They crouched under the banana tree. Pull your mask down the one with the gun whispered to his partner. I froze and took a deep breath. Under the clothesline, I was still hidden by the tent. If I backed away slowly without being heard, I could follow the secret path along the wall to the neighbor's window and ask them to call the police. I took a step back and leaves crackled under my feet. Both men looked over at me in the dark. I thought you said the kids were inside, said the masked one with the gun, and I told you to pull down your mask. I thought everyone was inside, the other man said, as he pulled down his mask over his mustache. As I watched them watch me, I opened my mouth to shout to my parents, but nothing came out. I opened my mouth wider, nothing. My feet were frozen and heavy. Grab her and take her to the bushes until I'm done, said the man with the gun. Every lecture my mother ever gave me about things men could do to you in the bushes flashed in front of me. I knew it was time to fight. I opened my mouth wider to scream to warn my parents and barely heard my own muffled squeak as his large hands covered my mouth. He pulled me back into his chest, silencing me. I kicked frantically, 
but my feet struggled to touch the top of the grass. I tried to scream again. He tightened his grip, to, grip over my mouth, and this time he covered my nose too. He made it about two steps, and suddenly my feet hit solid ground. I pushed, I pushed back with all my might. She doesn't want to go to the bushes. She's fighting me, he said. The man with the gun grunted in frustration. Bring her inside then. My feet hung inches above the ground as he carried me across the patio, the front door open and waiting for me. The man with the gun walked in first, and from the far corner of the room, Daddy looked up from his newspaper. My brother was still on Mommy's lap, playing solitaire at the computer, their backs to the door. She turned around. Holy shit. I gripped both of my hands over his one hand and pulled down as hard as I could. His arm didn't even budge. It was like he couldn't even feel me. The one with the gun walked toward my father. We're here for the money. Take me to the safe. My dad cleared his throat. I felt my eyes widen as I struggled to breathe, and I kicked and pulled at the mustache man's arm. I looked at mommy as I felt two tears run down my cheeks. She was watching the man with the gun. I kicked once to catch her eye. Oh my God, you're suffocating her, you're suffocating her. Please stop, put her down, please. She looked me in the eyes. One arm clenched my brother and the other reaching for me in, in the distance. His muscles relaxed and my feet finally touched the floor. As he released my mouth and nose and turned my face up and to the left to look at his. I saw his eyes widen through the holes of his mask. I'm so sorry, are you okay? He said as I gasped for breath, are you okay? I nodded and gasped confused looking at his mask. Mommy's voice shook. Can she come and sit with me? Please give me my child. I ran to my mother and brother at her desk. My father stood up on the other side of the room. Don't do anything stupid, the leader said as he tapped out his stomach with a gun. Then he said to the mustache man, go get a knife from the kitchen and stay with the wife and kids. He returned with a butcher's knife and sat next to us. He'll stay with them, the leader said, while you take me to go get the money. Stay calm and don't do anything stupid. We're here to deal with you. My father nodded slowly in response. The room was suddenly very quiet. My mother's legs were shaking us as we sat on her lap. The leader poked daddy's stomach with the gun a few times and led him into the kitchen. The masked man tapped the butcher's knife against the wood of the desk. Tap, 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 tap. All three of us stared down at the tile floor. My mom was trembling all over. Tap, 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 tap. Mom pulled my brother and I closer to a chest. One of us, one of us wrapped in each arm. Tap, 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 tap. She continued to look down at the floor as she nervously blurted. I don't want to upset you, but the tapping of the knife is making me nervous. Please stop, I can't take it. Tap, 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 and the knife froze in the air. I'm sorry, ma'am, I didn't mean to upset you, the mustache man said, his words falling over themselves. Don't worry, we're not here to hurt you, he said. She took a deep breath. I know you say that, but it's hard to believe as you tap a knife in front of me. The mustache man turned his chair towards us with the knife still in his gloved right hand. Where do you go to school, he asked me. <laughs> My mother shook me not to respond, but he asked again. It's okay, I won't hurt you. Do you both go to the same school? My brother and I nodded. What do you want to be when you grow up, he asked. <laughs> My brother and I looked at each other in silence and then up at our mother's faces, eyes wide. I don't know, I said. And we both shrugged our shoulders as our mother's lap shook beneath us. Please don't hurt my children, 
take what you want, but don't hurt my children. She said, no, ma'am, that's not what I came here to do. I just want the money, he said, as he looked her in the eyes. She watched him rest the knife down on the desk away from us. Are they getting good grades, miss? <laughs> then he turned to us. You two need to stay in school. <laughs> so you don't end up like me. I didn't choose this life. This isn't what I wanted to do. But I didn't pay attention in school. So when I finished, I didn't have any opportunities. Now my grandmother is sick, and I have to do this to afford the medication. Stay in school. He looked up at my mother and back at us. Your parents are paying a lot of money for you to, go to, for you to get an education. Education leads to opportunity. Get a good education. I don't want to see you be like me. My brother and I nodded and glanced at each other from the corner of our eyes. The man with the gun came back into the office with my father. They didn't have it. The safe was empty. My parents ran a car and villa rental company from home, and apparently a rumor had started that they kept $30,000 in the safe in the house. The truth was, the safe just had old papers and a combination they frequently forgot. Are you sure there's nothing else, old man? The man said to my father, who had his hands in the air. His left hand was missing his gold watch and ring. The gun poked him in the back as the robber returned him to the desk. Stay quiet and don't call the police for 10 minutes. If we hear sirens, we'll have to come back. He shook his head. You don't want us to have to come back. The mustache man got up and they left. Daddy asked us, are you okay? The three of us nodded as my mom asked, you? He nodded back, and we sat in silence for a few minutes. When we felt it was safe, my father picked up the phone and called the police. A mix of plain clothes and uniformed officers arrived and separated us for questioning. I saw real guns for the first time. These guns seemed as though they would do real harm, as opposed to the robber's guns, which seemed ornamental. My mom told them I had seen one of the robbers. My dad said, she's a talented artist, to the officer, and turned to me, why don't you draw him? <laughs> I felt pressured, but I eventually drew a quirky Hitler-esque drawing of a mustache that I knew was useless. The officer took it, looked at it, and said, good job, thank you. <laughs> a patronizing platitude, I knew it wouldn't help him. And then, and then the next day was school as usual. Two weeks later, they called my mom to come in with me to the police station. As we drove to the police station, I sat in the front seat. I don't want you to identify the man, she said. It was the opposite of everything daddy and my brother were saying. While I was a teller at the bank, the bank was robbed. I saw his face just like you. And I went into court and testified against him. But he saw me when I testified. At his sentencing, as the officers were carrying him away, he looked at me in the eyes and promised me, I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you when I get out. My testimony put him away. She glanced at me and said, it feels weird saying this, but I was lucky. He died in jail a few years into it. If he hadn't, I'd be living every day in fear. I don't want that for you. But this robber wasn't like that, I responded. Not the one I saw, he was nice. <laughs> if you testify, he'll see your face, and if he goes to jail, even if it's for a decade, you'll only be in your teens when he gets out. I just don't want you to live your life in fear. 
but I need you to listen. It's important you don't tell anyone I told you this. The police can say I'm obstructing justice and I can get in trouble. The decision is up to you. A few minutes later, I stood in front of a one-way mirror with a nice robber, clean shaving, and wearing jeans, and a, sh and a shirt on one side, and me and the two officers on the other. Take your time, the officers said. Look good. I stood in silence for a few minutes, then I slowly walked the length of the mirror. I figured this would be the only time I'd see this room in my life. The officers watched me and asked, do you see him? I looked at the robber's face one more time and then looked at the officers in the eyes and said, nope, I don't see him. Thank you. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. That was absolutely incredible. So um, how old were you at the time and where in the Caribbean does this story take place? So uh, I actually intentionally left out where it was in the Caribbean because I find that people tend to make assumptions about certain countries and I'm talking about robbery. Right, right. And so I intentionally left that out. Uh, to be vague. And I found, I also didn't mention the ethnicity or like race mm -hmm. of the robber. Yeah. And that was intentional too, because I wanted to leave it vague. And the first time I told the story, I had people come up to me and ask me, like some envisioned a white man, some envisioned a black man. And I was intentional about that because I know people have biases and mm. I didn't want to play into those. No, that's very, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't even see it from, from, from that perspective. I was just, you know, I was just interested. Um, yeah. So, has this, have you seen a different reception from your story when you do leave out those details? Um, I've only done it where I've left it out. Okay. Um, so I would say, yes, I get a lot of questions because people come up to me and they tell me what they envisioned and it, right. they envision different th things based on where they're coming from. Right. So I've had some people like say they, in, they see a, a white man, other, some said, someone said they saw an Indian man, yeah. but they were, that was their background. They were projecting their own worldviews to the image of what that robber looked like. And, uh, the way he presented in the world, which I found interesting. And that's what I was aiming for. So yeah. I achieved my goal. I just focused on eye movements and the fact that he had a mustache, which was very memorable. Yeah. Um, and he, like when his mask was up, he presented as what I think in the society at the time would have been like very clean shaven, like well-groomed. If he had on a nice shirt, you would have thought he was a young professional. Right. Um, but he talked about how life circumstances led him on a path. He didn't do well in school. And he actually, he said more than I said in the story. He, he told me that he didn't do well in school, but when he graduated, he realized to become a lawyer or a doctor, things that would make money on a small island in a small island country, mm -hmm. that you needed a good education. And so he felt like he hadn't realized he, people were telling him that he should have focused in school, but he didn't realize the importance of it. And yeah. then he felt limited in his career options. And it really made me think about, like that was the first time that somebody had exposed me to really thinking about like labor market demands mm -hmm. and <laughs> yeah. uh, thinking about the way we 
construct our careers. And his conversation, of course, as someone that was holding a weapon was Mm -hmm. very memorable, but the sincerity of it and in the way he was giving my brother and I advice to stay on the right track and to take advantage of every opportunity my parents were giving us was powerful. So in regards to this man that was holding on to you, um, he had given you his reasons for for being for being a thief uh, because he didn't have any money and uh, mm-hmm. know, he needed to provide for his grandmother. Um, it felt though that you did have some empathy for this man. For sure. I thought he was very nice. Um, I didn't want him to go to jail. I wanted him to have a second chance. Um, he, I had no, I, I didn't think he was there to hurt us. Right. And he said that. Uh, multiple times. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I felt safe, but I didn't feel like I was in any danger, even though he was holding a knife. He seemed just as nervous as my mother was during the whole process. He was shaking. And that's one of the reasons why the knife was tapping against the wood. Yeah. Um, and it didn't seem like it was something he was comfortable doing, but he felt like he was stuck. Yeah. And he took the time to give my brother and I advice so that we wouldn't end up in that situation. <laughs> so if you could go back to that, that situation for a second, um, when, when this man had asked you, where do you go to school? And, you know, he started giving you all this advice, were you, it feels like the story kind of takes like a comedic turn in a way. Um, it's a serious situation, but it like, you, you can't help but to kind of, you know, laugh inside when you, when you see this happening. Um, were you very confused when this was happening as a kid? Um, I think when you're a kid, you read people's, you read people by the way, um, they're interacting with you. Right. So when he apologized for like accidentally suffocating me, I could tell that he wasn't trying to hurt me. Like he seemed genuinely apologetic. He didn't, he wasn't there to hurt me. So, uh, as we as we were speaking and he, as he started to ask me about school, I felt comfortable talking to him because it just seemed like any other adult asking me how school was going. Um, and because I could tell he was so nervous. I think my mother was so focused on the fact that he had a gun and, mm-hmm. or the other uh, robber had a gun and that it was a robbery. And she was so nervous that she wasn't noticing how nervous he was as well. And my brother and I, I don't think we, we thought we were the target of the robbery. Clearly they were there to rob our parents and we were just sort of bystanders in the process. And so we could be more aware of everybody's responses. And as I saw how nervous he was, I thought it was just a conversation. So I felt comfortable talking to him, but my mother tried to stop me from telling him which school I went to. Uh, we, I think it was a year or two prior, we had somebody kidnapped from their school, from our school. So it was, it was a parent that had kidnapped the child, but I think she was just worried that we could potentially be followed or like used for ransom or mm-hmm. something like that, which I mean, is not a common occurrence at all, but in that situation, your mind goes to the worst. Um, yeah. So did you feel like this event had a big effect on parenting and the way your parents had parented you and your brother moving forward? No, not at all. No. Um, uh, growing up, my dad was probably robbed about 20 plus times. Mm. Uh, it, it, but that wasn't 
based on like the country or the environment. It was based on his own situation. He didn't like to lock doors and he liked to walk around in Rolexes and use a drive a Benz and leave the car door open and just live his life as though if somebody were to rob him, uh, often what he did is if he could, he'd have a conversation with the person. So after my dad passed last year and uh, we had people come up to us and tell us stories. And one of the stories was uh, somebody was stealing from my father and he was in his teens. And instead of my dad like reporting him or uh, getting him in trouble, he basically told him, you can steal from me or I can teach you how to build your own wealth. Really? And... So he, my dad took him under his wing, helped him pay for his university education oh my God. and sort of changed his trajectory for his life. And I didn't even know my dad did a lot of these things. Um, at his funeral, we had like politicians go up and say, I wouldn't understand half the things I knew about finances if it weren't for your father. And, uh, he helped some like prominent businessmen uh, sit down and strategize how they were going to pay for their university education. But he was not university educated. He stopped school at like grade eight or nine or so. Um, he grew, he was born in 47. And back then he lived on a very small island, probably had less than a couple thousand people. Um, and it wasn't common for people to go all the way up to high school, like finished high school, like to grade 12. Um so he, he, but he realized the importance of education. He grew up in, um, he grew up supporting my grandmother's, uh, like convenience store. So he understood like how a business worked and he used those principles built all been built on them and self-taught himself everything he knew about finances. Wow. Um, and then went on to teach a lot of other people. And he worked in uh, a bank for 30 years and, developed a very strong reputation for helping people uh, build their businesses and get on their feet. And he was that he was adamant about passing that on to his children and giving them any sort of educational opportunity that would help them get there, get to where they want to go. No, that's, that's on. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I mean, that's what this show is all about is seeing people's perspectives and how they view certain situations. Um, you know, so that's why sometimes when you, you hear about something on the news and you see a headline like so-and-so robbed or so-and-so, um, certain, certain things are happening. You know, you, I often question like, why is this happening? Why are people, you know, going to these lengths to do this? Um, but it, it seems that, you know, with your experience, you've, you've kind of, um, understood that as well. And, um, I think that, you know, we're very fortunate to be living in Canada and not to say robbery doesn't mm-hmm. occur here, but, um, does your story ever make you think about the measures that certain people have to take in other parts of the world to make, to make their ends meet? Um, yes, for sure. Like as I travel and as I live uh, in other parts of the world, I can definitely see things that people take for granted in terms of safety, but I can also see that the people that end up robbing you, um, although I, I would never say like robbery is a good thing. Like I, I saw that the police officer that came at the end of that robbery to help us. And those robbers could have grown up like a block away from each other. Mm-hmm. And it was just different advice that they were given different things, like different tipping points that sort of sent them in different directions. And 
from that age, I started to question like what, what makes one the police officer with a gun and the other, the robber with a gun. And it, that <laughs> that's led on a journey in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it definitely made me evaluate the, the privilege that people can have. Right. And when it comes to safety and thinking about your environment and thinking about the people around you and just like, what do people have access to? Like in Canada with like universal healthcare, his, his mother or his grandmother would have been able to access medication. Right. And he may have been able to use OSAP to go to school um, and doctor's visits and all of that. It, it makes you, it really makes you think that like these, these everyday small occurrences Mm-hmm. Well, quote unquote small, uh, have a larger, there's a larger reasoning as to why, you know, these things are happening. And then of course the effect that they have has a much larger effect on the people around us in our society. For sure. Yes. Um, so yeah, we don't, we don't think about it that, you know, perhaps if you had a better infrastructure, people wouldn't be doing this and that, or, and cause people get desperate and mm-hmm. they, they, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, of course. But I mean, you were, you were pretty young when this happened. Is it, was it ever... Is it painful for you to ever revisit this story or revisit this this situation? No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't scared by the end of it. I was scared initially when he was going to take me to the bushes, but then once he apologized for suffocating me, I could just you can sense people's intentions, and I could tell that he didn't really mean any harm. So I. Revisiting it is fine. It's a story that I've told uh, to my close friends, uh, sort of as, you know, that's times when it comes up and you're like, hey, do you have any interesting stories? Yeah. Like this this is one that would come up. Um, I've never really told it in as, as much detail as I have now. Right. Um, so this is kind of like the backstory of the mm-hmm. story <laughs> and, you know, what happened beyond that. Um, but, but what I'm curious to know, Jet, is... You know, how did this situation um, shape you as an adult? I mean, it seems that, you know, you took a lot out of it um, and it, you, you learned quite from it. But you, did this cause any sort of traumas or anxieties for you growing up? Uh, no, not this particular incident. There were other times where my parents were robbed and it was more traumatic and that led to me being more afraid. Like as I walk around a corner, is there going to be a robber potentially there? And it had to do with the fact that my parents ran a business from home. So they were, they had a car rental company. They had 30 plus cars on the lot, plus their personal cars. Um, and they also, uh, had about 10 properties that they were renting across the Island. Um, so people knew that they would have a cash flow and they they would come trying to to get money and we would often have our door open because we had employees and the business was from home so we had like a mechanic a plumber for the property so people would be in and out and it didn't make sense to lock mm-hmm. the door um, and we'd just lock it as it got dark at night and historically that would have been fine but crime was increasing as economic inequality increases right and um so when robberies started to happen a bit more frequently, when it, my parents developed a reputation for having more money, mm-hmm. then it was a, a little bit scarier, but still the focus was never 
on me. Right. Like it was on robbing my dad in particular, not even my mom. They would just leave us alone. Um, and they would focus on him and it would just be a conversation. And usually he seemed relatively calm. He knew they were just there for money. Um, yeah, so it was it was fine. It was weird because you, the next day I would just get up and go to school. Like even if they, I remember one morning they were robbed about six six a.m. in the morning, and so when I got up for, at like seven thirty to head to school, um, they just said. We'd been robbed this morning. Go get ready for school. Oh. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like just another day. Yeah. I mean, it is. It, so have you ever shared this story and had some someone come up to you in the audience saying that, hey, I've, I've been through something similar? Yes, I have. Um, and it was a Canadian woman. Um, I, she, I don't want to share her story, but yeah. she... Just she just opened up and said, like, I can relate to what you're talking about. Um, not in my father's attitude towards things, but just in the fact that it it had happened. And her story really my story really resonated with her and she wanted to connect. I had a few people reach out to me, more so that they could really visualize it as it was happening, yeah. more than it resonating with them on a personal level because of lived experience. I would hope not as many people live through this as I have. <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and, and that's why I brought you onto the, the podcast because was when I first saw you do this um, mm-hmm. earlier in the year, I said, I said to you, I'm like, man, I could see this being a short film. Like mm-hmm. I could, I could see every part of it, especially like the tap, tap, tap. Like mm-hmm. I could see that happening. Yeah, I could even like visualize like the background music and everything. Like it's, it's interesting. Like the way you, the way you um, give all the specific details, it's, it was very mm-hmm. well, well put together. Um, what do you, what do you plan to do next with the story? Um, so it's been published in stories we don't tell as a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is stories we don't tell for those of our listeners who don't know? So stories we don't tell is a storytelling event based in Toronto where you tell the stories that you wouldn't typically tell from your day-to-day life. Um, and they're the two co-founders, Paul and Stefan, help you workshop your personal stories um, so that you can present them in people's homes. So people then open up their living rooms and you just stand up in a group. I think when I told this story, it's about 55 or 60 people in a living room. Um, so they've been doing that event for five years now and they've published 61 of their favorite stories or I guess some of the most compelling they curated a list of stories and it's been published in there and then I'm also using it in my own book um, that is more line along the lines of what I do now which is career coaching and business coaching but I incorporate my personal stories and how I learned some of the lessons that I've learned along the way because a book should be engaging <laughs> and we're yeah. going to get to that as well yeah mm-hmm. so you also um run your own business as a career slash uh, business coach um and your business is known as the happy career mm-hmm. how long have you been operating as a coach for and um how did this idea come to life so uh, i was an international student in canada i went to I, after I graduated from university, I decided that I wanted to stay in Canada. And it was 2011, middle of a recession. And I really, I wanted to find a job. 
and I sent out 200 applications mm. and I got zero responses the first time around. Um, I had studied, uh, I did a double major in business and sociology with a certificate in community development. And by the time I graduated, like my dad's business wasn't doing well with cash flow. So he said, if you want to stay in Canada, here's $500. You have to figure it out after this. Um, <laughs> $500? <laughs> what, like a week of rent? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had 90 days to yeah. figure things out. And I was going to run out of cash before the, that 90 days was over. Yeah. Um, so after I sent out 200 applications... And I got no responses. I was like, okay, I have to rethink this. Like, I know I have skills. I had worked. I had done a bunch of internships. I had volunteered actively. And so I knew the issue was that I wasn't marketing myself effectively. So I went on a ton of workshops. I read a bunch of books. And I got to this point, I think after about maybe 15 to 20 days of like 16 hour days, just learning how to market myself, um, I sent out... 10 applications to 10 jobs within the GTA. I, d I narrowed it down to like where I want to live, the type of job that I want to do, like how I can really add value. And then I created these super tailored resumes and uh, um, cover letters. Uh, I sent out 10 applications and I got seven interviews. Mm -hmm. And the job that I really wanted was helping other students learn how to do this for themselves, how they could market themselves more effectively. So I ended up working in um, experiential education, which is helping students bridge the gap between um, em employment and academic theory. So like it's like co-ops and just different service learning methods that they use in universities. Um, so I did that for a few years, but because in my first 18 months, I went from being the assistant in the office to leading the office. And I was 22 at the time. And so not only had I, when, when they talked about working in the university, usually what they referred to was as young were employees that were 25 to 30. Here I was like 22 and I was working with a team of people. Um, and people started asking me how I did it. Um, and so I started giving them advice for career coaching and from there, um, initially I gave it to people, the advice for free and people came back to me and said, you know, I really want to pay you for your services. So I started giving, they started giving me like gift cards. Then I had too many gift cards. <laughs> so like, there's no point in using, like I, I had Amazon gift cards and I didn't want to buy anything off of Amazon. Yeah. And so I decided I should just accept cash <laughs> yeah. and it started there. And it, then I branched out into entrepreneurship because I realized my, my dad had taught me so much. My parents had both taught me so much about starting their own business. They both grew up, uh, I wouldn't say poor. My dad was a bit poorer than my mother, but um, they both grew up without much. They didn't go off to university and they made a multi-million dollar business um, from scratch. Um, so they taught me all of the principles to do that. And I thought those principles were common knowledge. And I realized that they weren't. And so when I started career coaching people and they were really struggling with their careers, I started to say, did you know that you consider could consider entrepreneurship as an option and you may be able to make more money uh, doing exactly what you do, like as a psychologist or whatever, um, if you were an entrepreneur rather, rather than working for somebody and you could set your own hours and you can build a career that helps to meet your life goals. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
I really focused on uh, building a career that allows you to align with who you are as a person. Um, my first year that I was working at the university, uh, I faced a few obstacles. Uh, my my initial supervisor was racist. My mom was stabbed in a robbery. Uh, and this was back home? This was back home, yeah. And th there were a lot of like suspicious sort of circumstances around it. She lived, she, she lived, uh, but she was stabbed 17 times. Oh my Lord. So there was a lot of... <sighs> And I was in, I was in the city alone. I didn't have any friends that were living in the city. So I started to realize having a career isn't just about having a job that makes good money. It's about having a job that gives you or ha doing work that allows you the flexibility to live the life that you want and to be able to support the people that you want. Like I was able to go home for, uh, uh, a few weeks and I was able to support my mom and just be there first in the hospital. She wasn't in the hospital very long and then just stay with her and like help her. She had like night terrors and things like that. Um, but when I came back, I started to get really sick and like I was stress vomiting. And that's when I really started to evaluate the idea of not just making money, but aligning that with doing the things that you want in life and creating um, a life where you are able to like really pursue your life goals and able to fund them in a way that you enjoy with the flexibility that you need. No, that's a, that, 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 that's a, that, that's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that you were yeah. able to take, you know, channel these, uh, these, these not so great situations and put mm -hmm. them into, into, in, in, into your career, into your business. You find ways to incorporate your storytelling into your coaching strategies. Yes. So a lot of people that come to me and they want career coaching because it's called a happy career, they are usually looking to create more happiness with their work, whether that is a career or a business. Um, and they would open up about the things that they were experiencing, but sometimes they'd be hesitant. And so I started telling people about my own life experiences and how I started my business and what my mother went through and how that affected me in branching out to become an entrepreneur. Um, and from there, I realized that those stories um, help people feel more comfortable talking about their own experiences. If you're going through something difficult, like... One of my clients, she she shares her story in like a review, so I feel comfortable talking about it. She, when she came to Canada uh, from New Zealand, her husband was injured in a construction accident, and he was the only breadwinner in the family. So she she was looking for work. She was well educated. She had a PhD, but she wasn't marketing herself effectively, and she found herself in a situation that was just very demoralizing. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to talk to her about my experiences with both immigration, with uh, dealing with my mother being stabbed and trying to support her through that um, while trying to like navigate work. And I just started to see how beneficial those stories were for my clients. Um, and 
And then I started to write them down through storytelling. And now I'm incorporating them into a book. So the goal is through the book, people will hear a lot more about my personal story. I also have like an online course where people can learn um, the strategies and tools that I use. So the way I, I explain it to people is if you want a career, if you want a job or a business, you are still an entrepreneur. It's just, do you have one client or do you have many clients? Um, you need to know how to market yourself. You need to know how to control the value that you're offering. Um, and you need to understand how to get people from point A of I have a problem to point B that problem is solved. Cause that's how, that's when they start to refer you. That's when they are excited to pay you. That's when they are excited to work with you again and again. Um, and when you're doing that for a company, you have one client and you're solving that problem that they've hired you for within your job. But you can also transition that so that you can solve that for many people and branch out to having your own business where you have multiple people paying you so that you're not as dependent. If you lose that one job, um, if you lose one client, you are you didn't lose all of your money like you do with a job. What I really like, Jet, is the fact that you're channeling your life experiences mm -hmm. and putting it all into your your work. When um, I, I really like that strategy and I think that I think more of us need to do that. Um, I think more of us need to do that and don't see the the value in doing that. Just don't even, you know, it, it doesn't even cross our minds. So, I mean, if you could give me like a top three, what, what types of challenges do you feel most people struggle with when figuring out what type of career is ideal for them? A lot of people don't think that you should think about your happiness when you think about a career. So when I talk to clients, the first thing that I, ha I have them do is I set goals for the different areas of their life. And so many people have pushed back and they're like, what does this have to do with my career? And the way I explain it is I say, your career funds your life goals. That like a career that you will love helps you to do the things that you want in life. And that's what makes it happy. Like, um, so you have to know what you want out of life. You have to set your goals. Like how much time do you want to be like pursuing your hobbies? How much time do you want to be like spending with your loved ones? How much money do you really need to live off of and like travel and do the things that you want to do? And then that helps you set your income goals. And then you should reverse that math and try and figure out um, ways that you can break that down so you can achieve those income goals. So how many, if you are making, if you make a thousand dollars per client you and you want to make $6,000 per month, you need six clients paying you per month at minimum. How do you keep that income flow coming through? How, what sort of marketing initiatives would you do uh, if you were to start your own business, for example? Uh, the second thing that I would say people struggle with is they don't realize that they like a, a career, no matter what you're doing from a cashier all the way up to a CEO, you're taking somebody from like point A of I have a problem to point B that problem is solved. So many people focus just on the tasks that they do and they say, oh, you know, well, I track expenses or like I process cash. But what you're really doing is you are solving some kind of problem. If somebody's yeah. paying you, that means that you're solving a problem and what you what you want to be doing is focusing on solving high value problems so that 
you're willing to make more money. I mean, you're capable of making more money. So a high value problem would be something that people really care about. So for um, an individual, if you wanted to work in health, for example, or like nutrition, uh, if you if you wanted to do nutrition for a 25 year old that was already healthy, they're not going to find that as valuable if you're as it as compared to working with like a 50 year old that has diabetes where you're going to help them live an extra 10 years because you're solving like, it's like a dying concern for them. So no matter what you want to do, who would benefit most from it and how can you solve problems that really matter to people and take them like, what is their point a, how would they describe that in their own words? Um, so that you can make them feel like you're sort of in their head and you get it. Um, and then how do you get them from to point B of that problem is solved. Um, and then the third thing that people struggle with is marketing themselves. So most people feel uncomfortable talking about themselves. Um, they feel like they are being salesy or sleazy by saying, uh, can you pay me? for this. <laughs> uh, they don't feel comfortable asking for what they think they're worth. And so I help, uh, I help clients see that you can have a genuine conversation with somebody where you are authentically talking about what you do, why you love it and how you help. And that person will come to you and ask you, how much do you charge for this? And I teach them how to talk about what they do in a way that feels mm. authentic to who they are while allowing them to uh, market themselves effectively. A lot of us, I feel, want to become entrepreneurs. I mean, that just sounds so appealing. Why does the grass, always, and I've always asked entrepreneurs this question, but why does the grass always seem greener on the other side? And what sides of entrepreneurship are we not seeing? So the beginning is always difficult. It, it also depends on the type of product or service that you are offering. Um, I find there's a lot of talk about like passive income if you're in like an entrepreneurship circle. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. And so passive income is money that in theory you're not working for. Like if you make rental income, it's just coming in every month and you're not exchanging your time like hour for hour for pay. Um and it's great to have passive income, but what people don't see is to own that rental property, you have to have accumulated that cash and it's all the work that goes up front. So to start a business, it's about putting that work up front to make the systems work. Um, and it can be a learning curve if you don't have the right guidance. Um, but at the same time, you can have, sorry, <laughs> at the same time, you can uh, attract clients to work with you early on. So you can, before you even even created your product, like initiatives like Kickstarter or Indiegogo show you that you can attract people to pay you for an idea. Mm. And so there's two sides to that. Like, yes, to have passive income, you need to set up all these systems and have, have it in place. So it's working. You don't have to exchange your time for money, but at the same time to start a business, you can have people, uh, pay you for an idea and start it like that. And I think people like where the money is coming from is always the biggest question. And people are the slowest to answer that part of it. I think that's the hardest part. Cause once there's a steady cash flow to your business, you have the time and you, you have the time to make it grow and you'll have the resources. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
to some degree. I probably have to go back and listen to this one more time to. Yeah, I could probably explain it a bit clearer. No, no, that's good. That's good. No, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. It, it, it's. I mean, I think that, and also, I, I think that it, it's it's. That's why consultations are consultations are very important, so mm-hmm. you can kind of understand the individual mm-hmm. on a one to one basis and understand where their needs are. Because, like you said, um, not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone needs to be yeah in you know in a job or whatever. But that's what's. It, it's one of those things that it's it's a bigger conversation and it can't be solved in with a five minute. Absolutely. And I find a lot of people think that I can solve their career problems in a five minute conversation. (laughs) Um, And I said, if you haven't known what you wanted to do for like the last 10 years, how am I supposed to give you a solution in in five minutes? Um, But I, I do give people like exercises that they can work through where they think about the skills that they have, the values that they have, like they're what they want out of life and how they can buy, can combine that with me ways to meet others needs and solve problems so that they can create a career that they want. Amazing. So, um, um, I think that, you know, this, this, this interview was great. I mean, we went from you sharing your story to talking about your story to, to, to how you channeled and it's just, we've kind of gone through your life journey, I feel, <laughs> in a sense, which is amazing. Um, so, so thank you for, um, for, for sharing uh, your, your information with us. Um, now before we go jet is, uh, how can we find you on social media and, uh, how can we learn more about the happy career? So it's the happy career on Instagram. It's the happy for the website. Um, it, it'll be the happy career. I'm going to, I'm going to start my own podcast in YouTube in the new year. So it'll be the happy career there as well too. So it's the happy career. One cool. word. <laughs> cool. Amazing. Well, thank you, Jeff, for joining me today. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you had a great week. Until next time.